on Dixie Boulevard when suddenly the light turned yellow just in front of him and he slammed on his brakes and he did not go through the intersection, even though he could have seen the red light by accelerating right on through. And the tailgating woman was livid. She hit the roof, she hit the horn, she started screaming in frustration, and she missed her chance to get through the intersection. And as she was still in mid-range, she heard a tap on her window and looked up into the face of a very serious police officer. And the officer ordered her to get out of the car with her hands up. He took her to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a holding cell. And after several hours, the policeman approached the cell and opened the door. And she was escorted back to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. He said, I'm very sorry for the mistake. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, flipping off the guy in front of you, and cussing a blue streak at him. And I noticed the Choose Life, Choose Life license plate, the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker, and the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk, so naturally I had assumed you'd stolen the car. <laughs> Sometimes we don't live out our identity, do we? And that is what this chapter is all about in Colossians 3. So in the first two chapters, uh, Paul lays out the groundwork that destroys the arguments of the false teachers in Colossae. They were saying that Jesus was good, but that he wasn't enough. They needed deeper knowledge. They needed secret experiences. They needed angels to serve as mediators to God. All of these things. And so to accomplish this goal of refuting this heresy, Paul exalts Jesus Christ in chapter 2 and gives one of the greatest declarations of Christ's deity anywhere in the scriptures. And the emptiness of mere human philosophy cannot compare with our majestic, incomparable Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, new Christians can fall prey to false teachers when the realities of life and the presence of sin comes back into their lives. And I'm sure many of us have had that experience. But Paul says that what the false teachers offer is of no value against fleshly indulgence. It doesn't work. But you know what? Many of us today still struggle with understanding our true identity in Christ. So beginning in chapter 3, Paul gets real practical, and he shows us what true spiritual life looks like on both the inside and the outside. This chapter is all about our identity as Christians. Now, the dictionary defines identity as the distinguishing character or personality of an individual. It makes you. That's good. You're on the right track. Okay. It makes you who you are. So we as women have several different identities. I'm a woman, I'm a wife, I'm a friend, I'm a mother, I'm a runner, I'm a volunteer, um, I'm a kitchen diva, I'm a Pinterest sailor, all these different things. We all have experiences that shape us, we all have feelings that play a huge factor in how we live. Those are the things that make you you. But what I hope you hear this morning is the biblical view on Christian identity and it's not defined in terms of who we are in and of ourselves. Our identity is defined by and given to us by God. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield has an excellent book on identity um, called Openness Unhindered. I can't recommend it highly enough. And this is what, what she says. 
Uh, the Bible tells me that I have a longer history with God than my memory allows, and it takes me past the Garden of Eden to a majestic place called Before the Foundations of the World. This is the biblical story. This is the true story. And this is where our true identity begins. You know, our identity not only comes from the fact that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, but that we are so evil and depraved from the fall, and by our own choices, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God can save us. Our identity comes from Jesus voluntarily giving his life to pay the cosmic debt we owe God for our sins. Depravity means that sin extends to every part of my being, and I am totally unable to save myself from this predicament. And for reasons we will never fathom, we were worth it to Jesus. Our identity comes from the fact that our salvation is permanent. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hands. We may stumble and fall, we may disobey, we may doubt, but our lives are safe in his hands. You see, the biblical understanding of human self-identity is radically God-centered, and it goes far beyond the world's understanding. Colossians 2.6 says that you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And in chapter 3, Paul shows us how this new identification leads to a new way of life. Since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ lives, our life is revealed, you will be revealed with him in glory. And our new identity comes from the fact that we've died, which is verse 3, and been raised in Christ, verse 1. And Paul reminds us that we identify with Christ in both death and resurrection. Well, what is this past experience of dying in Christ? And how is being raised with him the basis for our present status as people whose heavenly identity is real and secure yet hidden? And this whole thing was really confusing, and I really struggled with how to communicate this. And then I read something in this book by Rosaria Butterfield that made sense. I'm not going down a funny trail, so just stick with me on this. One crucial gift that identity in Christ bequeaths is it gives me a way to defend myself against Satan's accusations. Union with Christ is part of the same armor. Satan is the father of lies and the great deceiver whose crafty seductions initiated at the fall. And when he attacks, Satan lures you into sin by suggesting that it is not a big deal, that its consequence is not deadly. But once you have sinned, Satan accuses you with the full wrath of God, a wrath he knows particularly well, and that he wants believers to also know as well. Satan uses the path, the sin of my past, and the sin of my present as extortion. He daily tells me that if my sin is revealed in its totality, everyone would know that I'm a fake, a condemned sinner. Does that go to this? Yeah. Satan hisses, I know who you are and I know what you've done. And he's right in a half-truth kind of way. He is right when he says that I've sinned grievously. And he is right when he says that God judges sins and that my sin deserves death. Satan knows Romans 3.23, for all the sins and fall short of the glory of God. But my identity is in the risen Christ, not in some moralistic notion that I'm all cleaned up, or some flimsy theology that says I only need to repent in some general way by, quote, accepting Christ. 
my identity is in Christ, and I have to set the record straight, and what fuels my resolve is deep and daily repentance to God. To my accuser I say, you are right about the depths of my sin. I am guilty of that and so much more. And you are right that God's punishment for what I've done is death. But here's what you don't know. You don't seem to know Romans 6, verses 3 to 11. Check it out, Romans 6, verses 3 to 11. Do you know what this passage means? Because of my union with Christ, I was put on trial. I was taken into custody. I was spat on and stripped naked. I was thrashed with metal whips by Pontius Pilate. I was tortured. I was crucified. I died with him. I was raised with him. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because I am clothed in his righteousness by the power of his resurrection. My identity has been sealed with nothing less than the blood of the Son of God. And that's what it means to have died and been raised with Christ. And because of this, we're to do two things. We're to keep seeking the things above, and we're to set our mind on things above. A different identity requires a different mindset than the world. It means we're to center our lives on the ascended, glorified Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. God's point of view must become mine, no matter how foreign such a concept seems, or how impossible our situation appears. And by reminding us of the heavenly realms where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Paul once again emphasizes the error of those seeking to diminish Christ's role as mediator. Paul's readers clearly understood that the right hand of God is the place of supreme privilege and divine authority. So spiritual growth, Paul has made clear, comes only from Christ, and so it's naturally incumbent, it makes sense, to focus on the place where he is. And somehow, identification with Christ and his resurrection means in some ultimate sense that heaven is where we truly are all. But what we are not to do is set our mind on earthly things. And this is another slight against the false teachers who Paul ironically suggests are doing just that. Visions of angels, secret knowledge. Paul calls these things earthly things. They're the foolishness of man. Things above are always tied to Jesus and who is enthroned above and they've got to reflect the values of his kingdom. Anything else is, is mere worldly thinking. And Paul also tells us that our life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, what on earth does that mean? Well, for the false teachers, the treasures of wisdom were hidden in their books, their secret books, which I guess they charged a lot of money for. But for believers, Christ is the treasury of wisdom, and our life is hidden in him. So one implication of this is that we draw nourishment from the secret or the private time we spend alone with the Lord and his word. That's the source. Well, Paul then says that when Christ is revealed, we will also be revealed with him in glory. And this is probably a reference to the rapture. But in, in view of this, neither we nor the Colossians need to pursue anything or follow anyone who claims to provide more than what we have in Christ. In him, you have been made complete. God has provided all we need, both for acceptance with him and for godly living in Christ. And all we need to do, or what we need to do, is act on or apply the implications of these truths. And that's exactly what Paul proceeds to help his readers do. So let's look at verse 5. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead. 
Well, that literally says, put them to death. That's a charming phrase. Uh, we could say kill off. But the meaning is assassinate, annihilate, destroy, get rid of entirely. Uh, it's a, he's talking about a violent sort of approach to this. Well, what are we to put to death? Well, he says, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. It's because of these things the wrath of God is coming, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Well, Paul rattles off this list of sexual sins. From the first is immorality, and we get the word pornography from that. Every, it means every kind of immoral sexual relation. Chastity was the one new uh, virtue that Christianity brought into the world, and it was just as radical and foreign to Paul's culture as it is to ours today. Um, the second element that we're going to kill off is impurity or moral uncleanness. And this is imagination, speech, things that seem so to sensual heart, having a dirty mind, thinking about those things. The third element is lust, which leads to sexual excesses. And the last element to be discarded is evil desires, which means self-serving lust. And, I mean, Paul just does not mince words here. He says these things need to be killed outright. And I don't have to tell you that America is awash in a sea of sexuality. From television programs to ads, to magazines, to things on TV, to online pornography, to romantic novels that are not really romantic, pornography in written form. Um, sex and sensuality are everywhere. And don't think this is a small problem. Paul uses a violent metaphor and he tells us to kill them off. And we need to apply this across the board. There are books and magazines we need to discard. Uh, some of us need to lock ourselves out of our computers and turn off our TVs. And I'm not endorsing legalism, but if you are being led in sensuality through these avenues, you need to be ruthless and get them out of your lives. Because if you play with fire, you are ultimately going to be burned. Well, Paul also mentions greed in this context, which is kind of funny. And he says it amounts to idolatry. And this word means not merely wanting to possess more than you have, but you want what someone else has. And well, why is this mentioned at the end of the list of sexual sins? Because it's greed is just another form of the same evil desire. It's just based on material things instead of physical experiences. Well, then Paul warns the Colossians in verse 6 that the wrath of God will come upon those who practice such things. Well, God's wrath is not the capricious and selfish anger of the Greek gods that they would have been familiar with, but it is correctly tied to his holiness. Putting to death sins like this is vital because God will visit his wrath on those who continue to practice them. And Paul reminds them that this is their past life, their past identity. You yourselves were committing just these sins at one time. You were living in the world where things like this were typically done. But because they had died, been buried, and been resurrected, and ascended with Christ, the old life was behind them, and they have a new identity. Well, Paul doesn't only warn them about sexual sin and greed, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, since you weigh aside the old self with its evil practices. Paul is especially concerned that Christians avoid unnecessary, uh, critical and abusive speech because the hard attitude of anger and ill will towards others often comes out of our mouths. Jesus reminds us that mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. 
Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with evil practices, and you put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. The focus on sins of speech just comes with the summary command. Don't lie to one another. Life in the Christian family has no room for lying. It hurts everyone when Christians are not truthful. And then Paul paints an image of laying aside the old self with its evil practices and putting on the new self, just like you change clothes. And the verb for laying aside the old self is also translated stripping off. So you think of you've done a workout, you've been out in the yard, you're all dirty and filthy. That's the picture. Strip that off. Get rid of that. That's the old self. And then he also uses the word. Um, to put on the new self, again, is that picture of putting on something new, something clean. Uh, and that is the picture of, of what he is painting. So we have a new identity, and that's what we put on. Now, this doesn't mean that we live a perfect life, and I think this is exactly right, because this is a process, isn't it? You take off, you put on, you take off, you put on, and that is how we grow. And that's exactly why Paul says that the new self is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In other words, we become in behavior over time what we really are by God supernaturally working in our lives, convicting us of our sin. We repent and gradually over time as we put on these new things and we learn, he transforms us. And he works out in our lives what he's worked into our hearts. There's this constant renewal that's taking place as we increase the true knowledge of what God is like. This conforms us to the image of our Creator. 2 Corinthians um, 4.16 says, We don't lose heart. Outwardly, we're wasting away. I don't know that. But inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. So the more we put off the old nature, the greater the renewal that takes place. And Paul says this renewal is so radical that it changes all human relationships. Look at verse 11. There is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but that Christ is all and in all. In other words, God is creating a community out of people, a new community out of people who have sloughed off, taken off their old selves, and put on their new selves. And one identifying mark of this new community is that people in it stop cherishing the things that separate them from other believers. It is totally inappropriate to boast in ethnic distinctives or language or intellect or culture or race or homeland or social status. Those things have passed away. The greatest identifying mark that we have is that Christ is all and in all. Once, we struggle to find our significance and happiness and our security and identity and what we were in relation to other people. Well, we're Jews. Well, we're Greeks. We're circumcised. We're free. We're American. We're rich. We're smart. We're strong. We're pretty. We're witty. We're cool. We all do that. But then he gets a hold of us and we slough off that old self and we put on a new self. And the core essence of that new self is that Christ is all. Paul wrote the Galatians, you can say it with me, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ is all. So if we make a practice of putting to death our sensuality and covetousness and laying aside these evil attitudes, 
this nasty speech that comes out of us, we will fully experience this astounding removal of barriers in human relationship. The new self lived out brings the destruction of racial barriers, Jew or Greek, it breaks down religious barriers, circumcised or uncircumcised, it breaks down cultural barriers, barbarians and Scythians, and social barriers, slave or free. And an amazed world will acknowledge that Christians have the real thing. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's what it looks like. So Paul then reinforces another aspect of their true identity in Christ by reminding the Colossians that they have been chosen of God and they're holy and beloved. Chosen people represents and reflects the Old Testament teaching that the existence and status of Israel depended on God's decision to choose them and to form them as his people, which he did through the events of the Exodus, the giving of the law, and the entrance into the promised land. In distinction from the Old Testament, where God selects his people mainly from one nation, Israel, um, God now forms his new covenant people by choosing individuals from both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus said, you did not choose me, I chose you. And so believers are also holy. We are chosen by God, but we're also holy. And that suggests the notion that we're, we're set apart for God. Peter said this very well, that you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. And Paul was hammering home the true identity of these believers. This is something we can never hear too much. Well, Paul continues with the imagery of putting on clothing and cultivating virtues that will foster community. He says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And a significant aspect of these virtues is that they're attributed to Jesus. Compassion is tenderhearted mercy. Kindness denotes God's goodness. It is God's goodness that leads us to repentance. Humility is typically a Christian virtue that was viewed negatively in the ancient world because it was viewed as cowardice. And the call to humility in the New Testament is based on the most supreme act of humbling the world has ever known. Jesus took on human form and humbled himself to death on a cross. Gentleness also fosters community, and that's the quality of not being overly impressed by your own sense of your own self-importance. And the model, again, is Jesus, who claimed to be gentle and humble in heart. And the final virtue in the list, patience, is once more an attitude that both God the Father and Christ display toward us as sinful creatures, and that we as his people should display toward one another. This is how Christians should clothe themselves, because this is who you are. Now, it's interesting, I think, that these virtues can only be worn in community with others relationship. How tempting to think that these garments would be so much easier to wear if we didn't have to wear them among people. <laughs> I am so patient when I'm just by myself. I'm so kind. It's those wretched people around me. That is not how it works. Christians become better Christians in community, in their families, in their neighborhoods, and at their workplaces. And the very things that we may think are keeping us from putting on these garments are the very things God has ordained to make us realize we can't do this in our own strength. 
So what happens when we wear this attire, this clothing? Well, Paul tells us what it looks like. We bear with one another and forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Bearing with one another is a first and necessary step in establishing community. Every Christian fellowship, including this one or the place where you worship, is made up of all kinds of people who are very different from each other. Remember, we have Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and don't forget the barbarians. They're everywhere. <laughs> there was going to be a lot of bearing with people who would normally never choose, you'd never choose to associate with. But that was just the beginning of what Paul required. He told them they had to forgive each other. Well, why? Because the Lord has forgiven them. And it's not just enough to put up with each other and refuse retaliation. We must truly forgive. And if we struggle with this, we are to remember the immense forgiveness of Jesus. Well, Paul then tells them, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And love is pictured as the garment that is to be put on top of all these other virtues. Love isn't just a virtue. It's the supreme virtue. The greatest of these is love. Okay, we got to move on here. Okay, so after Paul paints the pictures of how people are acting in community, he turns the focus to the Christian family. Wives, this is your favorite part, I know. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is sitting in the Lord. And the Greek word translated submit here is, you all know, it's a military word. It means to be under in rank. And you just have to respect those of a higher rank if you're part of uh, the lower rank. And it doesn't have anything to do with somebody being smarter or better or more talented. It has to do with the God-appointed order. And the verb form shows means that it's to be a voluntary thing, and the wife's submission is never to be forced on her by a demanding husband. It's the, the deference a loving wife gladly shows. Now, as is fitting in the Lord is the crucial phrase, and it colors everything we understand about this passage. As is fitting in the Lord doesn't mean a wife submits to her husband as if he were God himself, because it doesn't define the extent of submission is absolute. It doesn't mean that a wife should submit to her husband only when she agrees with him. If your attitude is, I'll submit to my husband when I agree with him and when he makes good decisions, I have news for you. That is not submission. Because everyone submits to others when they're in agreement. It is only when there is disagreement that submission is tested. As is fitting in the Lord does not define the extent or the limits of a wife's submission. It defines the motive of her submission. It means, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands because it's part of your duty to the Lord. It's an expression of your love and submission to the Lord Jesus. You do this because it honors God's word, God's word and his order of authority. This means that, being, uh, that submitting is has nothing to do with what my personality is. Wives are not supposed to submit because they are the submissive type. They are supposed to do it because it's fitting in the Lord. It has nothing to do with your husband's intelligence or giftedness or capability. This is how you honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to just take a second and say that this command to submit is not absolute, and there are exceptions to this. If your husband asks you to sin, you don't submit. That's wrong. If your husband is medically incapacitated, he's mentally ill, he's insane, he's under the influence of mind-altering substances, you don't need to submit. If he's had way too much to drink and he orders you to get in the car, 
You don't get in the car. That's stupidity. That is not submission. It's stupidity. If your husband is physically violent and, and, and threatens you, and there may be someone here whose husband has physically tried to hurt you, you don't stay there and be your husband's punching bag. Uh, physical violence is against the law. It's called assault battery. You get, you get arrested for that. You call the police. You get safe. You get help. You protect your children. And you get godly counsel on what your next steps are. But you don't stay and allow somebody to beat you up. You get help. Then, just, just as a word, because there may be people here that have gone through it and they've never shared that. You need to get help. Okay, well, after that cheerful news, Paul then turns to the, to the husband. I'm, I'm very serious. Paul turns to the husband, and he tells them to love their wife and not be embittered against them. And um, men are to love their wives the same way that Jesus loved the church. Then, we skip right over those husbands. We're going to go on to parents and children, and we're going to wrap up. Children, obey your parents in all things. It's well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they be discouraged. We need to remember that God is the perfect father. And the overarching guide for every father, and really for parents, is that they live in such a way that their children see what God the Father is like. The goal of being a good father or a good parent is to raise children who are not discouraged. And that word implies that they lose heart, they are spiritless, they have blank resignation towards life, they have no purpose. Don't be the kind of parents who rear those kinds of kids. Instead, you want to develop them to having the opposite of discouragement with that and having hope. And, and uh, having hope is not just hope in general, but it's specifically having hope in God. And so you want to raise your kids so that they understand that hope in God is the ultimate meaning in life. He is the one that we have our hope in. So you have to teach them early and show them that it's going to take suffering to enter the kingdom of God. They can rejoice in suffering, knowing that that produces endurance, character, and ultimately hope. Make your kids happy in the Lord by helping them see that hope in God is the ultimate that's the ultimate thing. And then uh, parents are not to provoke their children. And again, this kind of follows suit. You don't want to misuse that authority. You don't want to treat your kids in such a way that their spirit is broken and they become hopelessly discouraged. Paul calls this misuse provoking them. Don't do that. And Paul is basically teaching parents that they should avoid everything that ruins a child's confidence in God and leaves them hopelessly. And this requires tremendous wisdom. This isn't easy because not all short-term discouragement results in long-term hopelessness. But that's exactly how God teaches us. He brings us short-term frustrations and discouragement so we learn to trust in Him. And then we learn and we grow and we see that He's trustworthy and we see that our hope in Him is well-founded. And so you have the opportunity to teach your children those very things that you're learning about in them. And finally, Paul turns to slaves and masters and um, tells to obey, not with external service, but with sincerity of heart. Paul's final instructions again point to a believer's new identity and responsibility. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or an employee or a master or the boss. It's the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. So whatever you do, you do your work heartily as for the Lord. You have an audience of one. 
So serve him with gladness, with joy, to the best of your ability, because he is worthy of our very best. And that is the truest reflection of who you really are. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've given us a new identity, and it changes everything. And we know the enemy tries to dissuade us from that, tries to blind us from who we really are. And I pray that we would all leave today um, and marvel at who you are and what you've done and the life that you've given us. And I pray that we would praise your name as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.